Well, welcome to this, our 80th edition of Palestine Deep Dive. So something of a milestone for us and also completely apt that we're joined by Benjamin, who, as you all know, is director of the UK's Palestine Solidarity Campaign. And my name is Mark Seddon. I used to be a correspondent for Al Jazeera, UN correspondent for Al Jazeera, and I subsequently worked for the United Nations for the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and for a former President of the General Assembly. Now, the so-called silly season is behind us. Uh, that, as you know, is kind of August when uh, political politics goes into deep, deep dive cold in Britain. Uh, but now we're back to the kind of sense and sensibility time uh, of Britain's party political conference season. Uh, and as a precursor, we have the TUC, which is taking place as we speak in Liverpool. And Ben has hot-footed it back from Liverpool. Uh, and I'd love to be able to say that he's hot-footed to be back with us tonight, but he was there where yesterday a resolution was passed, proposed by the National Education Union, seconded by Unison, demanding the right to boycott, divest and sanction. And we'll come on to the domestic UK situation shortly. But first, in the past few weeks, we once again heard from the United Nations, whose high-level meetings begin next week at the General Assembly in New York. We have heard from governments and organisations all around the world, and we've heard from a former head of Mossad, all saying the same thing, that Israel is practising apartheid. At the same time, Huge demonstrations continue to rock Israel as people protest against Netanyahu's attack on the judiciary. And at this time, other than the United States, the EU, the UK and the Archbishop of Canterbury, it seems that everybody is in agreement when it comes to Israel and apartheid. So here we are in Britain with a government seemingly out of step with world opinion and a foreign minister, James Cleverly, lavishing praise on Benjamin Netanyahu's commitment to democracy, which he did in Israel yesterday. In addition, thousands of Israeli academics and artists, and that is no exaggeration, by the way, thousands of them have urged US President Joe Biden and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to shun Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu during his visit to the United States and the United Nations next week. Uh, it's a there's a letter is published on Wednesday. Three and a half thousand signers, including uh, the Israeli writer David Grossman, painter Tamar Getter, they all called on Biden and Guterres not to meet with Netanyahu or invite him to speak at the General Assembly. Now, of course, having worked there, I know that no the General Assembly will never ban any member state from speaking. But this is a pretty significant development, wouldn't you say, Ben? Um, I, I can't see this really being reported in. Uh, mainstream media here, but to have three and a half thousand signers uh, calling for President Biden and the Secretary of the United Nations to boycott Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, have you ever come across anything like that before? No. And um, Mark, let me say, first of all, to, to you and everyone at Palestine Deep Dive, um, congratulations on your milestone of your 80th. Um, you don't look a day over 70. Um, <laughs> so... Um, yes, look, I mean, this letter sort of comes in the context of what have been unprecedented uh, demonstrations in Israel uh, by um, liberal Israeli groups um, protesting the reforms, so-called reforms of the Netanyahu government, which are rightly characterized as threatening uh, the democratic rights uh, of Jewish Israelis, including uh, an assault on the independence of the Israeli Supreme Court. They've also been mirrored. We've seen similar demonstrations by liberal Zionist groups, um, Israeli expats here in the UK, when Netanyahu came to London earlier this year and we at PSC were protesting. We had the unusual experience of further along the pavement, uh, a group of Israel so-called pro-democracy protesters waving their Israeli flags and also protesting uh, the visit. Uh, it is important because it's opening up the conversation about accountability, about sanctions, but um, there is a problem. And the problem is that most of these demonstrators are making the point or asserting the case that the risk that they're concerned about is that Israel will no longer be a democracy. But of course, the truth, the reality for Palestinians is it's never been a democracy. 
uh, the Supreme Court, whose independence the protesters are keen to preserve, is the same Supreme Court which has green-lighted many of the most egregious aspects of Israel's project of apartheid and settler colonization, including expulsion of families from communities like Sheikh Jarrah, demolition of villages like Masifa Yatta. So the problem with these demonstrations is their framing is the issue at hand is how can we overturn this undemocratic government so Israel can be returned to the democratic status quo ante, where the real question is, how do we dismantle apartheid? And you mentioned the TUC. There was a, a meeting at the TUC that really should not have taken place. It was with the uh, Director General of Histrajup, uh, the Israeli trade union. Palestinian civil society have asked all civil society organizations and trade union to break links with Histrajup because it's complicit in the impression of the Palestinian people. But at this meeting, uh, the Director General of Histrajup, uh, who and Histrajet has been part of the pro-democracy protests, uh, made the point, and um, here's someone who's probably familiar to many of you, is he's Peter Lerner, who used to be the spokesperson for the IDF. And he went as far as saying, if these reforms continue, he will no longer serve as a reservist in the IDF. So that's a fairly extraordinary um, development. But of course, a company with that is if the reforms are reversed, then he wouldn't make that decision. So you're left with the uh, the only conclusion that he is quite content to continue to serve in the IDF and kill Palestinians, but not if Israel is threatening the democratic rights of its Jewish citizens. So in one level, we welcome the protests. They are opening up a conversation. They're removing the barrier of having a sanctions and boycott and divestment conversation about Israel. Um, but they are doing so whilst continuing to re erase the realities of Palestinian oppression. Thank you, Ben. And I should say for all of those um, joining us, please do send your questions in. Um, and Ben will try and answer as many as he can. Um, we're already hearing from some of you, from uh, Vicky Nicolaitis. Hello, everyone. Uh, so out of touch to call such a cruel apartheid democracy. Um, ben, I mean... You, you kind of outlined what is going on in Israel with civil society. Talk then uh, about the uh, trade unions and the IDF and, and what have you. But, you know, when it comes to this almost universal um, acceptance now uh, that Israel is practicing apartheid policies, what, what is really going on with the UK, with the EU and the US? Why, why are they all so hopelessly out of step with global opinion? Well, that's a very good question. That's a deep question. Uh, but I would reframe it slightly, because what I would say is that the consensus that is developing across civil society and spreading into public opinion um, is a recognition of what Palestinians have said for many, many years, that this is a system of apartheid. And that consensus is growing. Um, and it's been fueled by the, the real cornerstone reports from Betzalem, Israel's leading human rights monitoring organization, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty uh, International. People would have seen that last week the ex-head of Mossad, um, you know, accepted the characterization of Israel as practicing the crime of apartheid. So that understanding... Uh, that growing consensus reflected across international um, legal scholars, human rights groups, civil society is growing. The disconnect, so if we say why isn't it having resonance in the UK, the disconnect is with our um, political parties and political mm. leadership. Um, that's across the piece uh, of reluctance to accept that. We've seen the leader of the Labour Party slap down one of his MPs for having the temerity uh, to use the word apartheid in in relation to Israel uh, in Parliament, um, and you know within the Conservative Party there is a complete failure to engage in that. Um, that's part and parcel of all of the reasons why there is a continuation, a desire to follow the line, partly of of the United States government of continuing support. Uh, the positive is the disconnect between that line, the increasing evidence, and the body of organizations who are asserting that evidence. 
puts those political leaders in a very uncomfortable position. The old line that used to be used when it was Palestinian civil society and organizations like PSC, that this was a deeply problematic thing to say and could only be fueled by anti-Semitism. If you were saying that, then you were saying something anti-Semitic. becomes harder and harder to maintain when you've got the UN Special Rapporteur, when you have got Betzalem, when you have got Human Rights Watch, when you've got Amnesty International, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, you made reference to the TUC. We had two important motions last year and the year before at the TUC, which for the first time showed the um, UK trade union movement saying, yes, they shared that conclusion, they shared that narrative and asserted that reality. So it's time that our political parties woke up um, and accepted what mm. is becoming um, a consensus, as I say, across. Well, people. Ben, I mean, I, that's what I wanted to come on to you, really, with, uh, with the, the, the British political situation, also around uh, the BDS, of course, uh, and the legislation working its way through. But before we go there, I'm just just wondering, because, you know, if there is a universal, more or less a universal exception, um, a, a, a acceptance that Israel is practicing apartheid, there are surely ramifications for um, UN member states who continue to have relations with uh, an apartheid state. I mean, you know, <laughs> apartheid isn't a word that suddenly came about with what's happening with Israel and Palestine, because apartheid existed in South Africa, yeah. and there was a global sanctions movement. So I suppose the question is, you know, does that concern governments such as the British government be so out of step um, and to possibly face uh, international isolation itself. Britain could be isolated uh, herself uh, if it continues with this policy. Well, look, the sad truth at the moment, if we're saying, look, what are the current consequences for any state uh, that does not accept these truths and these reality? Um, the honest answer at the moment is that whilst the uh, leading powers, including Western governments, don't accept the reality, then there are not going to be material consequences. You know, any action, for example, that required um, the Security Council to endorse it will be blocked. Um, but those are some of the important next steps, that it is important that that, that consensus spreads further across civil society, um, so that it becomes harder and harder to ignore. Mm. There are, is an effort at the moment to get the crime of apartheid investigated uh, by UN agencies, by the International Criminal Court. Now, there are serious blockages being put in the way of that from Western powers, um, but, but that may become an untenable position. Um, and all of that's important because when we use the term apartheid, when it is used, when Amnesty use it, when Human Rights Watch use it, when Palestinian civil society use it, it's, it's not used um, in a pejorative way. It's not used to say this is something really bad we disapprove of. It's um, used forensically uh, uh, and in line with actual the legal definition of apartheid under the Rome statute, which means it's a crime in the same way it was in South Africa. It doesn't operate in exactly the same way as South Africa, but some leading activists in the struggle against South African apartheid, including Desmond Tutu, said actually the Israeli version of apartheid, what Palestinians are suffering is worse than we encountered yes. uh, under the white South African uh, regime. So it is important through all of these mechanisms, through popular pressure, through civil society pressure, through utilizing and continuing pressure through the UN, that we get to the point where what you're suggesting, which is right, is a moral position, that government should be held to account because there are responsibilities mm. they have under international law to challenge apartheid, that they are held accountable for failure to live up to those responsibilities. Thank you, Ben. Um, and and to, to the domestic UK situation, because, you know, as we were talking about right at the beginning, this is the party conference season. Um, you know, it was quite possible to say three or four years ago that uh, uh, the, the, the Labour Party, had it been elected, would have probably been taking a much stronger position than it, it, it would or will with Keir Starmer. But it'd be quite interesting to, to hear from you what your general overview is of the British uh, political parties, where they all are, Labour, the Conservatives. I mean, we've just recently seen 
um, the expansion of Conservative Friends of Palestine group under Baroness Varsi, for instance. But what's your general take on the situation with all of them, the SNP, the Greens, the Lib Dems, the Conservative? Where, where, is, it, where is it shaping up, especially as we uh, approach a general election uh, next year, as, uh, as late as October it can go, but there will be a general election? Um, look, the, again, the honest answer I would give um, is that if we were looking at the overall situation in the UK uh, in terms of um, activism in support of Palestinian rights um, and the recognition of the nature of the oppression Palestinian people are suffering being understood across um, mainstream political discourse, in many ways, we're in a better position than we've been for some time. Um, mm -hmm. We have very, very solid support across civil society. The trade union movement, the motion passed yesterday, showed the depth of support across the trade union movement. 15 major in, um, national trade unions are affiliated to PSC, consistently passing policy. The policy passed yesterday was almost commonplace. It's it actually hugely significant, but passed through with unanimous approval uncontroversial this is the position we hold in relation to support for palestinian rights but if we're asking the question how is that reflected across political party space we're in the worst place we've been for some time we have the most pro-israel government we've ever had in terms of the conservative party and that's part and parcel i think of the general drift to the right in the conservative party and we have people in positions of power in the conservative party people like michael gove who are ideologues on this issue in terms of pro-Israel positions. The significant development, unfortunately, negative development is the position of the Labour Party uh, since the toppling of Jeremy Corbyn. And although officially the, part, the policy of the Labour Party is that passed by its conference and two years ago, they passed a very progressive motion uh, on Palestine. Um, the leadership made clear, in fact, within 20 minutes of it passing, they were not going to accept it. I am expecting minimal reference to Palestine uh, within the Labour Party manifesto. The terrain in the Labour Party is whether or not they're going to sustain the commitment to recognising the Palestinian state. That's mm -hmm. the, really the lowest mm -hmm. hanging fruit. That's the minimum that should be done. Really, what they should be doing is following the policy that was adopted by the conference a couple of years ago, which is meaningful action to hold Israel to account why? Because that's consistent with the application of international law and the upholding of human rights, which the Labour Party, including one led by an ex-human rights lawyer, ought to be committed mm. to. But in a sense, we now have a position where actually you look at the Lib Dems and their policy is an advance of the Labour Party on this issue. They're, they, you know, they are committed to mm. calling for action, for example, in relation to products from uh, illegal settlements. That, again, is not strong enough. It needs to be much firmer. Um, but across the piece, across the political parties, good, a better position with the SNP, a better position with the Greens. But if we're looking at what is the outcome of the next election going to be, which is a, a, a Conservative government or far more likely a Labour government, we will have a Labour Party in power uh, that has gone backwards in relation to what ought to be its central values of internationalism and centrally on this fundamental issue of rights for the Palestinian people. Uh, thank you very much, Ben. Um, look, people, do, do, do send in your uh, questions, um, any messages. Uh, we're hearing from some of you. Uh, Katie Marshall. Hi, everyone. Lovely Cara from West Ireland is here watching, but not in the chat. She asked me during Navarra Live to tell you all. I'll pass on anything to her if you want. Um, Katie says, good evening, Mark Seddon and Ben. Jamal, it's great to be here to listen. Um, now, yes. Well, and Katie also says, Regove, there's so many ideologues in both main parties here now. It's really horrible to hear them all be this disgusting, especially from Keir Starmer, who was a human rights lawyer, as you were just saying, Ben. Um, well, look, um, all of this you've just been outlining within the British political parties, of course, at a time when you've got a former head of Mossad saying Israel is practicing apartheid, we've looked at how global opinion is shaping up. Here in Britain, um, we have got the the uh, economic activity of public bodies overseas matter bill, uh, which had its second reading on 3rd of July, uh, is playing out in Parliament. 
um, which seems quite bizarre to many people looking at this country from outside. But there we are. Can you tell us, uh, Ben, what what sort of role has have you been playing? What kind of role has the Palestine Solidarity Campaign been playing um, with this piece of legislation? Um, what what, is, what are you doing to to try and get MPs to think uh, again and on this select committee? Well, yes, and we've been anticipating this legislation since the government was elected under Boris Johnson in 2019. They put it in the original Queen's speech that they would bring in a bill uh, that would prevent um, public bodies from taking action because they disapproved. Uh, so taking action not to uh, procure from or to dive, not, not to invest in companies um, because of disapproval of the actions of a foreign state. So in other words, um, you know, to, to stop, as the government framed it, local authorities supporting a boycott or divestment actions. Um, so we've been anticipating it for some time. Uh, we've been fighting a sort of phony war when there wasn't actually a piece of legislation. Uh, so the activism on this has ramped up in the past uh, months since this was tabled in July. PSC has convened a coalition of now more than 70 civil society organizations it's extremely broad it includes a dozen trade unions it includes uh, faith groups the methodists the quakers the muslim association of britain uh, the jewish diaspora uh, alliance it includes civil liberty organizations liberty are involved human rights organizations amnesty and human rights watch are standing in opposition to this bill climate justice groups, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, so a whole swathe of organizations. Why? Because the way this bill has been drafted, um, all of those groups say this is definitively a threat uh, to democratic freedoms, to freedom of expression, uh, and to the principle that public bodies should make ethical divestment um, decisions, investment decisions, should not be investing in companies that are complicit in violation uh, of international law, of human rights and climate injustice. And this is what this bill will do. But of course, the principal target of the bill is the Palestinian-led BDS movement. So in our work, we are making that very, very broad argument that, for example, if you're concerned, if you want to go to a public body, to a university or to a local authority and say, you shouldn't be spending money investing in this company because it's complicit in the violation of the rights of the Uyghur people by China. This bill mm. would prevent that. But we are having to do work because the government has made clear that its very specific target uh, is the Palestinian-led BDS campaign. And it has made that clear through a very particular clause in the bill. So the government, within the bill, it says a government minister can exclude a certain state from being under the rubric of the bill. And they've already said the bill passes a government minister will introduce regulations that says if you as a public body you want to take action uh, to support divestment from a company that's complicit in supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you'll be able to do that. But there's a special clause that gives Israel a unique uh, protection. And it says no government minister can ever exempt divestment that is on the basis of disapproval of the actions of Israel. That so is extraordinary. That is quite extraordinary. I mean, Ben, that really is quite extraordinary. In order to say to uh, democratically elected local authorities who may well have got a mandate mm -hmm. to say to organizations that uh, have their own constitutions, their own memberships, who can make their, that they would be breaking the law by taking action against one country. You know, but it's perfectly acceptable to make a political decision about the actions of others. It's, it's, it is a really quite a pernicious clause, this, it sounds. It, it's very pernicious and it actually gets worse, Mark. So the, the government argument is uh, that such actions um, are foreign policy decisions and it's not for local authorities to be making foreign policy decisions, that's for the government. That's a, that's a complete mischaracterization um, of... Uh, actually the responsibilities of, of public bodies uh, to make sure they're investing in line with environmental and social 
government's considerations. In other words, to make sure they're not investing money in companies that are complicit in violations of human rights or international law. That's the basic principle. That's not conducting foreign policy. That's saying that actually mm. um, we should not be investing in such companies because that um, diverts away from our responsibilities to invest ethically. But it gets worse because there's actually a clause in the bill as well that says if the a relevant person in a public body, so the leader of a council or the head of a of the of the um, of a pension scheme, states publicly that they oppose this law, that they would make a decision to divest, uh, but they can't do so uh, because this bill prevents it. That is also uh, an offence under this bill, so they could be subject to penalties for saying that. So you've made the point about public bodies and local authorities, for example, um, having mandates. So if you're, um, for example, in a hustings, if a leader of a council is standing for election and you ask a question and say, I'm really concerned that we are investing in this particular company as a council uh, that's, that's complicit in China's violation of the rights of the Uyghur people, if that council leader in responding to you, your concerns as a citizen says, I agree with you, but unfortunately we can't take that action because this bill prevents us, they would be in violation of the law. Uh, so there's a there's a gagging clause that prevents um, elected leaders or responsible people in public bodies from even speaking out against the bill. It's quite that is That is just absolutely incredible. And, you know, even for lots of us who try and follow these things is, is something I suspect of is something of a revelation. And I'm, 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 I'm really wondering now, you know, what happens uh, when it gets to the House of Lords? What happens when lawyers really get to look at this? Um, and if there's been, you know, if this has been adapted from legislation that's been passed elsewhere, where has this gagging clause come from that you've had? I mean, it is, it seems... It seems a quite extraordinary thing. Well, we are anticipating. So there, there was a significant body of opposition in the House of Commons at second reading, although it passed. And unfortunately, at that stage, the Labour Party abstained. But the Labour Party has committed to opposing the bill at third reading. They need to be kept under pressure to do that. All of the other main opposition parties, mm -hmm. apart from the Democratic Unionist Party, um, are opposed to this bill and there is significant opposition from uh, conservative MPs a number of conservative MPs are very concerned about this on the on principles of local democracy freedom of expression the overbearing central state a whole range of grounds of concern uh, so there there was a Tory rebellion we think there will be at the third reading but it is very difficult for this bill to defeat defeat in the House of Commons because that is going mm. to take more than 40 Conservative MPs to rebel, and that's extremely difficult. But yeah. we are expecting a significant body of opposition in the House of Lords. Uh, you mentioned lawyers. There are law lords, obviously, that sit in the House mm. of Lords. There are legal opinions. Uh, Richard Hermer, QC, KC now, uh, did one for the Labour Party, uh, identified forensically what laws he thinks this bill is violating including that special clause in relation to Israel, he thinks is a violation of the UK government's responsibilities under UN Security Council Resolution 2334. So uh, all of those arguments are going to be played out in the Lords. Mm -hmm. We expect this bill to come back with many, many amendments. Our argument is it's not amendable, but it will be a delaying process. So this, this yep. fight is not over. It is quite feasible that if the government is put under enough pressure and enough trouble, and it's a government that's running out of time in terms yeah. of the time it's got left, that this bill could be stopped or allowed to die in the committee process. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because it could it could run to the latest to, to October, um, and it could, as as you say, be completely snarled up in the in the House of Lords and the committee stage. Well, that's very interesting. I'm just wondering. I mean, because we've got Mary here in London. Um, I mean, she asked the question. I mean, have you? I don't know if you're able to to discern this or able to pick it up. But I mean, what has the view been from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office? Are they are they, are they content with this? Well, I mean, we know. <laughs> um, we know that advice, because this was made public, 
was given uh, to Michael Gove's department, the levelling up department that has responsibility for the bill, from uh, Foreign Office civil servants that they thought uh, that this bill violated the UK's responsibilities under international law. So they were very, very mm. concerned about the clause um, that I've identified that relates to Israel. The specific, so the additional element of that, it says that you cannot take, you can never take action uh, to divest in relation to concerns about the conduct of Israel. And then it, it, it also adds the territorial consideration of the occupied Palestinian territory and the Golan Heights. So that's, uh, there's a strong view that that is a, should be understood as a shift in government policy that is no longer differentiating between Israel and the illegal settlements. And that is what's a violation of the UK's responsibility under U, um, UN Security Council Resolution 2334. That was the advice that the Foreign um, Office gave to Michael Gove's department. He has chosen to ignore that advice. Uh, it was also then the point picked up by the KC who gave um, advice to the Labour Party, who also said this is a violation of the UK's responsibilities under international law. Yes. We are all conscious with this particular Conservative government <laughs> that it's a Conservative government that's um, somewhat blasé about what its responsibilities are under international law. Well, we see that, yes, with with the pushback on. Um, I mean, you know, people might take different views on this, but the you know the European Human Rights Convention, for instance, and you know, uh, you know, some some people wishing to play sort of hard and loose with international law. Um, but the, I mean, as you were saying that, I was also wondering. You know, I, I know that you have attributed this to Michael Gove, the minister, and uh, and you have said that he's an ideologue. But at the end of the day, it does seem rather bizarre that a piece of legislation like this is actually coming from Michael Gove and the Department for Housing and Leveling Up. What on earth, what on earth do they, what expertise do they have over them for the Middle East? Well, the, the answer of that would be none, but obviously, um, I mean, I think the technical reason for that is because this, this sits within the responsibilities uh, of communities. So it's, a, it's about the activities of public bodies and in that sense um, with a specific focus and public bodies includes local authorities, uh, universities. Of course, it also speaks to um, what is the pernicious argument that underpins the rationale for this legislation. So as I say, it has a very, very broad effect. The government's main intention is to target the Palestinian led um, campaign for boycott, divestment and sanctions till Israel ends its violations of Palestinian rights and the argument being used to justify why do you need to specifically uniquely prevent Palestinians from exercising the right to call for boycott well the argument is that's anti-semitic uh, <laughs> or foments anti-semitism and the argument used to justify that so the the prongs of argument are deeply pernicious pernicious one of them is um that Israel is the world's only Jewish state, uh, so it is problematic uh, that it is being targeted for boycott. And that is an argument that rests on anti-Semitic foundations, I would argue, that says all Jews have the same political views and all Jews are supportive of Israel and its actions towards the Palestinian people. Mm. But secondly, it's an argument that treats Palestinians by a different standard because it says well, this is problematic and anti-Semitic because Palestinians, when they call for BDS, are only calling for action against Israel. Um, now, that's an argument that's only directed at Palestinians. Imagine trying to construct an argument in the 1970s or 1980s uh, that black South Africans must be motivated by hatred of white South Africans or white people in general because they called for action against the apartheid regime that was oppressing them and didn't simultaneously call for the world to boycott Indonesia because of its oppression of the rights of the people of East Timor. Or imagine anyone being given any leverage in public, public discourse at the moment if they argued we have to regard the Ukrainian people's call for boycott and divestment in relation to Russia to be motivated by hatred of the Russian people because why aren't they also asking for us to take action against Saudi Arabia because it's bombing Yemen? So it's a pernicious argument. It's only directed at Palestinians. It has no legitimate foundations whatsoever.
Very interesting. Now, a few more questions coming. Well, Katie Marshall says there's probably going to be a three-line whip from the Tories on this. So getting 40 government, uh, 40 backbenchers to rebel could prove tricky, which is very much what you were saying, Ben. Uh, Nick McAlpin joins us. Uh, hi, Ben. It's Nick McAlpin from the New Arab. I've got a question about the Public Bill Committee examining the anti-boycott bill. As far as I'm aware, only we and Middle East I have reported on the absence of Palestinian witnesses in the oral evidence before the committee. Why do you think the mainstream media has not reported on any of this? Um, that is a very good question, Nick. I'm glad you've raised it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to promote an article in the New Arab, um, Nick's publication, but I wrote about this and they published this this week and he's absolutely right it's it, it is utterly egregious so if you if you go back to what i've just said the rationale uh, and the motivation for this bill is that the argument that there is a specific problem in relation to the palestinian uh, call for bds and that involves um pernicious arguments but a mischaracterization of how bds works um and and how it works in terms of principle which is a principle of targeting complicity and not identity and how it works in practice. So it's pretty extraordinary. If you're making an argument that smears a campaign, uh, that also attacks uh, my organization, PSC, which is the uh, leading body in this country that is conducting campaigns of divestment against public bodies. It's pretty extraordinary if in the public discourse, and then you call witnesses who echo those smears and mischaracterizations that you do not invite a single Palestinian organization to give evidence. Uh, and you also do not invite the PSC to say, well, you're conducting these campaigns. Here are some concerns we have. Please address them. And we'd be very happy to give to, direct evidence. Tell us if you will, Ben, how, how it works with the Select Committee, because I was always under the impression that, you know, given they are all party, of course, the, you know, the, uh, the some Select Committees are government chaired others by the opposition or whatever but at the end of the day I, I i was always under the impression that other members of parliament from different political parties could choose to invite psc or new arab or whoever it might be to come yeah. why is this not happened or if it hasn't happened why why, why is this not, why has it been prevented why have you been prevented by the chair well um i you're i mean the the committee is government dominated Mm -hmm. uh, so the preponderance are members of the government. You're right that members of other parties who are on the committee, and we have some MPs on that committee who are allies, uh, who are definitively opposed to this bill. They do have the right to ask for people to give, give evidence, but the chair has to agree with who is who is actually called. And there will be a whole variety of people. And there were some good witnesses, Human Rights Watch, uh, Amnesty, Amnesty International, Unison gave evidence. But what was remarkable and notable was the absence of a Palestinian organization. Um, so that's why we've actually launched an e-action. People, if they go on our social media, can add their names to it, writing to every member of the committee saying you need to address this uh, and you need actually uh, to, although their hearings have ended, uh, to redress this, to take action to ensure that Palestinian organisations are given an opportunity. How would that be through written evidence? Uh, well, written evidence has been submitted, but my understanding is the committee does potentially have the capacity to extend its time to say actually right. this was a mistake or to find other mechanisms to say we will address this. But we're also trying to make the political point of drawing attention to it because it does make clear what's going on here. This is not a matter of having serious substantiated concerns uh, that you want to investigate. Um, that's not what it's about. And if anyone was any doubt about that, um, it's not just the fact no Palestinian organizations were invited, it's who was invited. Um, a whole range of pro-Israel uh, organizations were invited. Most egregiously, UK lawyers for Israel were invited to give evidence. And Melanie Phillips, the journalist, was invited to give evidence. Now, UK Lawyers for Israel, for any of your viewers who don't know who they are, is an organisation with a track record of harassing organisations that advocate for Palestinian rights. They are the organisation that harassed um, the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital um, 
and put them under pressure to remove an exhibition of plates made by Palestinian schoolchildren on the basis that they were offensive uh, to Jewish patients. But they are also an organization uh, that has hosted uh, extremists, and I don't use that term lightly, they have hosted extremists from an organization called Regavim that does not accept the illegality of Israel's occupation, that lobbies the uh, Israeli government to demolish Palestinian homes and expand settlements, and was established by a minister in the Israeli government called Bezalel Smotrich. Now, many of your viewers will be familiar with who he is, he is on record recently as saying there is no such thing as the Palestinian people. They don't exist. They've never existed. And he has openly called, publicly called, uh, for the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and destruction of the Palestinian village of Huara. And I think most of your viewers will be familiar with the track record of Melanie Phillips of egregious Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism. She was seen as a suitable person to be called to give evidence to a parliamentary committee. Quite shocking, really quite shocking. Well, look, thanks very much for that, Ben. Um, I thought we might for the last um, 10 minutes or so, if it's all right with you, really look beyond uh, what's happening in parliament now with the BDS bill. I mean, you've outlined where it's at, what might happen, the challenges uh, that lie ahead, um, the possibility for it not not actually making it through if it, if it gets caught up in committee and in the House of Lords and what have you, but not to be complacent, it obviously poses a very 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 real and existing uh, threat to public organisations and democratic organisations all over the country for the reasons that you set out. But if we look ahead now um, to the run up to a general election. Um, we've mentioned this already. It has to take place before October next year. There'll be a multitude of issues, no doubt. And in a short particular, in the short election campaign, um, foreign policy issues rarely get um, much of a, a, of a sort of a run or a mention. But given what has been happening in Israel-Palestine, um, given the greater visibility of uh, of the repression that has been happening and the killings. And, and just this evening, we have learned that four Palestinians have been shot dead in Gaza. They were protesting about prison conditions. So presumably they've been shot across the border by the IDF and, and killed. But how important will the issue of Palestine be? And in particular, looking at the major political parties, looking at the constituencies and where demography can play a major role. How important will it be and what influence do you think the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, other organisations can have in making it a bigger issue in a general election campaign? Well, Mark, you're absolutely right in terms of the challenge in um, making what people will regard as a foreign policy issue central to the question of how people are going to vote. Uh, that's extremely difficult and we know what will be the issues that will dominate uh, in the election? We know that the um, cost of living crisis will be uh, the fundamental issue of concern to most people voting. But but really, the answer to your question is that's the challenge uh, for organisations like PSC. That's part of our job um, to uh, make effort to ensure that the issue of Palestine resonates. And I would say that's a challenge also. And there are things that can be done. Uh, by all of those listening to this who I presume are here because they care about the issue of rights for the Palestinian people. And we do that in a number of ways, I think. One is um, that we we make clear that it matters, actually, um, um, Britain's reputation, the consistency with which the UK government, when it issues rhetoric about support for international law, support for human rights, um, that it's not if it's not consistent in the application of those principles that matters in terms of its reputation, but also the strength of its argument when it wants to use an argument. You know, if the government, want, if, the, if the UK government wants to stand in front of the world saying it is taking action in re relation to the U Ukraine because it cares about principles of national self determination, um, about opposition to military occupation, then you have to apply those consistently, or they have 
no leverage. We also make the arguments that we made, we've made consistently within the trade union movement and have, and that have resonated there, which is the struggles against unjust forms of power, the struggles against racism, uh, the fight for social justice are not boundary by borders. There's a fundamental principle of internationalism that says an injustice to anyone anywhere affects justice to everyone everywhere. So there's an argument there where we say this matters. Uh, what we are doing, what's happening to other people in the world, and our complicity in that matters, and we should address it. So we have to make all of those arguments, but the way we do that, we know when uh, MPs come to stand for election, candidates stand for election, um, what will influence them is people telling them these things matter mm. to me and they're going to influence how I vote. And we will be taking action to do that. We will do what we've done in previous elections. We will contact every candidate that we can, put yeah. questions to them, four or five questions. Where do you stand on these issues? And we will publish the results. And then we need people to lobby, uh, to write to their MPs and say, these are things that matter to me. I want to know what you think. We encourage, we have 80 branches across the country. When it comes to an election, we encourage them all to hold hustings, usually alongside mm. other um, organisations that are concerned about issues of international justice, social justice, human rights, to gather together, to hold hustings, to get the candidates there and say, we want to know what action you're taking on climate justice. We want to know what you're doing to stand against racism. And we want to know what you're going to do to ensure that the UK is consistent in the application of international law and support for human rights. So we want to talk to you about UK policy towards Palestine. Now, now that's very interesting, Ben, because I mean, I mean you, you know as, as well as, as, as I that the, the major political parties essentially um, run their campaigns around 30 or 40 marginal constituencies. In fact, mm. national policy gets geared yeah. to these swing constituencies. Um, now, many people in this country also argue because we have this first-past-the-post system, that's why we end up with having political parties that almost have to meet in the middle in order to win these marginal swing constituencies where there's a, a floating voter balance of, um, of uh, well, they like to think them all being very moderate voters sitting there in the middle. But so are, are you looking at, at some of the constituencies in the same kind of way? Because it's quite possible, for instance, in some of the university towns, and cities, in some of the constituencies where there's a high um, uh, population of a Muslim background, that there could be, um, uh, this could be an issue that helps decide people's votes. And when I've, you've heard this, I'm sure far more than I have, but I've heard Labour MPs say, look, you know, if there's any backtracking, for instance, on uh, recognition of Palestine, that's going to make me think very, very carefully about what I do, and I will speak out. I will block. So, how how you, how do you think you might be able to play this um, in constituency where that that demography actually gives you a big advantage? Well, you make very good points, and I think in relation to universities, towns, university towns, um, we have, as I say, we have branches across the country, uh, so we know the areas where. There are demographics who may be voting in those towns, younger people for whom um, these issues may particularly resonate. We say they should be issues of importance to everybody, um, any person of conscience. You're also right. Um, this is not an issue that we tie to religion. This is not an issue that we say you should only care about if you have this particular um, ethnic background or this particular set of religious beliefs. But there's a reality that we know the concern about the rights of the Palestinian people resonates particularly uh, amongst the Muslim community. And there are um, organizations who we work in partnership with um, who are active in those communities, who are representative of those communities, who need to do and will be doing important work. Um, in particular, I'm talking about some of those areas that would be defined as red wall seats where there are high levels of Muslim voters, and it is important that they are making clear if they regard Palestine as a central issue, that they are delivering a message, and I would say particularly to Labour candidates, this matters. This is a red line issue, and you need to be making clear um, that what if the position of your party coming to this election is poor, if you individually, as a candidate, 
are not going to be pushing inside the party for a change in that and making clear what your position is. That will affect how I vote. All of those mechanisms are extremely important. Thank you, Ben. Um, and I think really we we have to begin to draw things to a close, but we've got uh, Rana Shaber, and Rana is um, in Gaza, uh, and she says, I want to say that organizations like the Palestine Solidarity Campaign are fighting the battle, which is just as important, as urgent as the battle we fight on the ground here. Thanks for all that you do in enlightening the public and staying steadfast in your endeavor. Um, she also says, uh, because we just talked about this a moment ago, I said that the, we understood that four people had been killed in Gaza. She says, Rana says, on the men just killed a few hours ago here in Gaza, it was when an explosive device detonated, killing five people as per preliminary reports. Well, I'm sure there will be more on that. But the thing is, we have had a very wide discussion this evening uh, with Ben. Uh, and we're very grateful to you for joining us and for, for telling us so much more about what's really been happening behind the scenes in Parliament uh, and with this uh, this BDS bill, this anti-boycott bill. It seems quite extraordinary that uh, all of these things are happening under our noses. And if it's not, it wasn't down to, to the new arrow, to PSC and to, to others, we simply wouldn't really know what was happening. Um, and that also will, I'm sure, motivate people to do so much more to be active and to help. So, you know, in the run-up to the general election, people really can make a difference. And we must all watch out for what Ben and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign are doing, see how what we can do to bring influence on people standing for public office. So, look, Ben, thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground. We've, we've looked at the, the international aspect. We've looked at the domestic. We've looked at the future general election in this country. And um, all power to your elbow. Uh, thanks very much, Ben, for joining us. It's our 80th show, as you said. Congratulations. We don't look 80, but uh, we're delighted that you joined us on our 80th. We'll blow out some candles now. And thank you, Ben. Uh, thank you all of you who have watched. Keep in touch. And until next time, it's goodbye from Ben. Goodbye from myself.